Dear listeners, the following episode that you will hear was recorded before current events began unfolding in Israel. The content reflects that. The tone of the conversation reflects that. Uh, I believe that this podcast is an anchor for many people, and therefore I am going to put it up, uh, although I don't know what's going to be in the coming weeks, and maybe we'll change some of our content. I, I really don't know because I don't know what my availability is going to look like and what the situation is going to be. This is a tremendously, tremendously difficult time. As many of you know, many of you are living in Israel. And the podcast also went up automatically because it's timed on the website. So it just went up on Sunday right after Chag before I really had the chance to, to get any of my footing and figure out what, what needed to be done. So first of all, I apologize if anybody heard this and it seemed insensitive or just disconnected to, to what's been going on. I am not going to go on any long introduction here. I believe the episode on, on Noach will be shifted and changed based on what's going on. But for now, we're going to leave this content as it is. And we are all, I'm sure, going to keep praying for the well-being of all those we love who are both on the civilian and military front in this unprecedented time here in Israel. Sheya Shalom Arami Yisrael. everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One -on -One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. This week's episode has been sponsored in memory of Leah Bat Harav Moshe Natan Halevi and Toibe, Zichronan Levracha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content and are a meaningful way to mark both mournful and joyful occasions. Be in touch and together we can come up with a meaningful way to mark your occasion. A few words of introduction. I want to thank Rivi Frankel, who stepped in for me while I took some needed maternity leave. Not much resting was done. I gave birth, we moved houses, we did some traveling to see family, and I went back to work with the baby in tow, and of course began preparing this series on the Book of Brishit. There have been a lot of blessings bestowed upon my family uh, all at the same time. I'm still in the process of absorbing all of that on interrupted sleep, but I'm so happy to be back here having meaningful, curious, and open conversations about Torah. In this season, we will hear from many new guests as well as some returning favorites. Last year, we spent this series focused on family dynamics present in the book of Breshit. Those were some of my favorite conversations, if I'll be honest, because I really think that the essence of the book of Breshit is the establishment of the family of Avram, and it teaches us some harsh realities and positive ones about family life. This year, the series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The first 11 chapters of Breshit address universal struggles surrounding morality, the establishment of civilization, and establishing proper boundaries between heaven and earth. If chapter 10 compiles the descendants of Noah and their settlement of land, water, and nomadic existence, by the end of chapter 11, the focus has narrowed to the family of Avram 
Avram. Imagine a spotlight before the start of a play circling around the stage to finally settle upon a table and chairs at its center. God chooses Avram. Why? Well, according to the plain verse, we don't really know, which is why the Midrash fills in so many missing details about Avraham really choosing God, about his piety. What we do know is that he is charged with representing a moral standard and a relationship with God unlike any other individual before him. The book of Prishit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Cain, Noach, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and his sons. But these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make. And it is the nexus between being chosen and the human choice that actualizes this divine will in the world that we will be exploring in the coming episodes on Brishit. Upon which decisions do the unfolding events hinge? What do these choices teach us about Torah and what do they reflect about ourselves as humans? Why does God choose these particular messengers and what moral religious program is he trying to cultivate in the patriarchal period? These are some of the questions that will guide these discussions. Parshat Brishit opens with the creation of the world, famously told in multiple ways in the Parsha's first two chapters. After this, we come across the story of Adam and Chava's sin, Cain's murder of his brother Hevel, modeled in many ways after the story of sin that comes prior in the garden. The Parsha seamlessly rolls into genealogies of Cain and then Shait, who eventually births Avraham, uh, and which are often overlooked. <laughs> well, this is unfortunate because they're texts that can tell us so much more than uh, about who birthed who. And the Parsha closes with the enigmatic unions of the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, coupling with the daughters of man. What seems to be a prologue to the story of the flood, demonstrating the kind of boundary overstep and immoral behavior that led to God's regret that he'd ever made man. And thus he decides to destroy them. My partner in conversation today is the amazing Dr. Tanya White, a beloved lecturer at Matan's Jerusalem and Renata Branches, a returning podcast guest and a dear friend. She has been on the podcast too many times at this point for me to mention each episode number. A collection of Tanya's articles, blogs, and published materials can be viewed on her website, tanyawhite.org. Tanya, it is wonderful to have you back on the podcast. I'm so excited to be back here with you, Yosefa. And, and really perfect that we're opening up our new season together as I come back after a bit of a hiatus. And we're jumping into Parshat Breshit, which of course has, uh, there's so many philosophical questions and just broader life questions that are sort of hidden or not even so hidden in this week's Parsha. But as we open up this series, we're really speaking about the idea of choice. Now, I wouldn't look at Adam, Harishon, and Chava as sort of messengers of God in the same way that we look at Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and their, and their wives. I think that we look at Adam and Chava often more as sort of like prototype humans. And the critical scenes that we see in this week's Parsha are really presenting us with what it means to be human and what it means to to make choices. So why don't, why don't we start with that? So if it's okay with you, I want to f- kind of throw back a little bit. I know we're after the Chagim, but I want to speak about the Chagim for a minute because I think it's not by chance that we begin Sefer Bereshit on the heels of everything that's come before. If we think about the Yamin Noraim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then we go into Sukkot, all of the Chagim are centered around, in my in my opinion, this idea of 
being human, what it means to be human. If we think about the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, if we think about the idea that the rabbis in their brilliance understood that to awaken a person, to really kind of throw them into that space of thought and introspection, it, they need to be faced with their mortality, right? They need to be faced with their humanness, which is the idea that in, in Martin Heidegger's language, being towards death, that all of us at some point are going to die, that all of us have a limited time here on earth. And the biggest question is, what choices do we make? What choices do we make as humans here on earth? And over, and Sukkot, by the way, is kind of um, on the heels of that, because Sukkot, if we read Kohelet, and if we think about what we're doing, we're entering in to a very deep consciousness of impermanence, yeah. right? Of the idea that we're, that we leave our, the permanence of a house, the security of our home, um, the certainty of our existence, and we move into this space of uncertainty. And then the question is, how do we exist in that space? That's this, that's really the question of Sukkot, which is why, by the way, we read Kohelet, because Kohelet, the whole of Kohelet, is about that question of what is the purpose in our being, mm -hmm. right? If it's if it's just being towards death, or if it's just uncertainty and impermanence. Um, and over Rosh Hashanah, I was reading from Rabbi Sachs' beautiful commentary in, in the Mahsa, and one of the things he speaks about, one of the things he says, and he says, then what, you know, he gives the whole beautiful history of how Rosh Hashanah came about, really fascinating. But then he gives, I think it's seven points or eight, no, I think it's more, I think it's eight points about why, what Rosh Hashanah teaches us. And one of the things he says is, third, the third point, we are free. Judaism is the religion of the free human being, freely responding to the God of freedom. We are not in the grip of sin. We are not determined by economic forces or psychological drives or genetically encoded impulses that we are powerless to resist. The very fact that we can do Teshuvah, that we can act differently tomorrow than we did yesterday, tells us we are free. And he says, you know, many people along the ages, psychologists and philosophers and have argued against this idea. And he says, yet yeah, Judaism stands by this idea. And I think to me, this is the absolute essence of Parashat Bereshit. To my mind, the story of Adam and Chava and Kain and Hevel in, in Parashat Bereshit, to my mind, they act as prototypical stories in exa exactly addressing this question of what does it mean to be a human being, to face adversity, to choose and what choices do we make? And what happens when we make the wrong choices? So uh, I, I want to go deeper into that point, because when I read the story of, of Adam and Chava, I don't often look at their choice. I know that it was that they made the choice, but the way the story runs is that you kind of feel that they didn't they didn't really have a different choice. It's kind of like when you put, you know, the marshmallow in front of the child that mm. you're not it's it's going to be something utterly superhuman for them not to make the choice to take the marshmallow. And so to me, I hear about it and OK, we have all these trees you can eat from and you have one tree that you can't eat from. But I also don't think that that God would have put the story in the beginning of Saver Brashid if someone had made the right choice. Meaning that would not only would it be a boring story, it also wouldn't be a story that teaches us really about human failing, which I think is really the point of this story. And so whenever I look at the story, I say, well, he had a choice, but he was never going to make the right choice. There's something almost it, the, the, the way that the, present, the presentation of the whole of the whole scenario kind of makes always made me feel that that he didn't really have the ability to choose better 
her, her and him. She's obviously the one who made the first, the first step of the choice. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Meaning I don't feel like it's a full a hundred percent Bechira Chofshid, both because I feel that they were limited, right? Did they really understand what, what the consequence was of what they were doing? Again, it's the way I look at a choice that a, that a young child makes. They're not really aware of the repercussions, right? They, they heard, but they didn't really understand yet. And so, so I feel I like think- their choice is a bit different than the kind of choices I make, you and I make. So I think to take your analogy of the child, I think it's the perfect By the way, it's not mine, it's Casuto, who I always have to bring right. up, but it's Casuto's, his understanding yeah. of the whole Gun Eden story is that it's really a practice run and it's kind of like um, training a child, That that's his, but yeah. Yeah, so I would say even more than that, a lot of people say to me like, you know, if God didn't want them to eat from the tree of knowledge, why did he even give them that temptation? And I think the, the, the obvious answer is that, again, we, we can argue you know, do we read it literally? Do we not? Is it a metaphorical story? Is it a prototypical story? Um, and I don't want to get into that. But what I do want to say is that I think one of the profound ideas here is that we see in it the birth pangs of humanity. Like, I really see that. I really believe that this is the story that teaches us how humans were born. Not just how they were created, which we see obviously in chapter one and chapter two, but chapter three is how they were born to be human. What does it mean to be human? And one of the one of the um, ideas, the kind of under the foundation of humanity is the idea that there's always temptation that there's always something. Now, if we take the, as you said, Kasuta's analogy of a child, I think that, let's say we give the child the marshmallow test. So yeah, it's not a fair test because clearly the child, unless they're superhuman, are gonna choose the marshmallow. But what we begin to teach the child, and this is how the child grows up, is what are the consequences of eating the marshmallow? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think to, to, and that's how a child grows, that's how a child matures, that's how a child develops. And as we grow old, and by the way, that's the perfect example, because one of the things that they learn or that they, the consequence of them eating from the tree of knowledge is that Dafka, not everything is immediate anymore. There's like, there's two main consequences. In fact, let's just take one second to look at the text, because I think it's like, so if we look at the text, what we see is that something happens when Chava eats from the tree. And, and then Adam eats from the tree. And what happens is that there's a sense of duality of self because all of a sudden they become very deeply aware that they have an external and an internal self. Yeah, con- an awareness, an awareness, awareness of, it's a consciousness. They didn't, have, they didn't have self-awareness. It's a before. consciousness. Yeah. Exactly. I don't, in a sense, it's exactly the development of a child. I don't want to get into that so much today because I really want us to focus on the mm-hmm. idea of the choice rather than the idea of this duality of self, but it's definitely connected. And then Hashem turns around and he says, Ayeka, where are you? Now, again, obviously, the where are you is not a geographical where are you. It's a very introspective, it's kind of addressing their inner selves, which all of a sudden they're conscious of. But really, the point I want to get to is what happens afterwards. And what happens afterwards is that he essentially tells them you can no longer live in Gun Eden. So to the woman, he says that she is going to have children. You're going to have children. So she is going to live in this sense of, again, uncertainty, of not knowing, of having a child, of having to suffer. 
And to the man, he also has to work the land. And then he says, the land's going to be the land is going to be cursed because of you. You're going to eat again. What is this etzev? This etzev is really the, the exactly the, the chasm between the immediacy of something and having to wait for it to come about. It's the ought and the is. It's the ideal and the real. That is what the etzev is. I, I once heard um, Dr. Viva Zornberg speak about this idea that etzev is really that kind of that pile, that gap between the ideal and the real. And I think to me, this is exactly the point. With a child, they choose immediate, what, what is immediate satisfaction, immediate desire is what mm. they're going to choose. What we learn as we grow up is that we have to kind of look long-term. What are going to be the consequences to my actions and therefore make a choice, not just on the short-term, but on the long-term. Now, again, this goes back to, to what I want to talk about, which is this idea of what it means to be human. And I think what it means to be human is to be able to understand that we don't live in a reality in which everything is immediate and therefore we need to carefully consider our knowledge using our knowledge using our wisdom using our ability to live as a human being and experience in the world to be able to defer to be able to create meaning what is creating meaning meaning when i create meaning or i create or I give myself a purpose, or I have a mission, what I'm essentially doing is I'm looking at my reality and I am choosing to frame my reality or to interpret my reality in a different way. I think one of the gifts, in a sense, that God gives human beings as they leave Gun Eden, right, is the ability to show them that things are covered up. The seeds are covered up, the child is covered up, Reality isn't exactly ideal anymore, right? As God says to them, you're dust of the earth. It's exactly what we're talking about in terms of, of Sukkot, of Kohelet, of Yom Roshani, of Yom Kippur, of Martin Heidegger, of being towards death, of all of these ideas of ultimately we're mortal. That's the first consequence, mortality. Mortality means death is always knocking at our door. But what does it mean for us as human beings? We can either choose to see it in the good or in the bad. The second thing is time. There is an immediate reality, but there's also consequences of our actions. There's also long-term reality. There's also a way of looking at reality that is not in its immediate um, vision or the immediate thing that we're facing. So to me, those are the two consequences of basically eating from the tree of knowledge and wanting to be godlike, and then God saying to us, no, you cannot be godlike. You are now going to become so, human. Okay, I, I, a lot of responses to things that you just said. First of all, I want to go back to the yeah. curses because it's interesting. You call them uh, blessings or at least sort of like a clear declaration of consequences, consequences. or what it means to be human. It's interesting yeah. that the Torah doesn't present it yeah. like that. I mean, the Torah presents it as something that is decidedly negative, which we could leave that as it is. But the, yeah. But, yeah, but not yourself. Yeah. I'm just going to push back. To be human is to be it is right. you're saying it causes pain and therefore look it's, at what's it's happening painful. in the world around us i like picked up the newspaper the other day and i was like oh my goodness i just don't know if it's worth <laughs> existing in this world like no i, I know no, you're serious seriously, look at the earthquakes and 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 the earthquakes and the floods and the, the and thousands of people dying and the suffering that you can't even begin to imagine and that's okay that's like obviously natural disasters but think about other things think about no, abuse. we think we about, do, I mean, do but, we but i just want to say human? that in the in the prototype here of male and female 
which again, we're going to call them the prototypes because obviously they exist in male and mm. men and women in, in, in different ways. But we have the, I love that, that sa'ar that is sort of like the sa'ar, the pain that's created by delayed that's gratification that's almost, right? So yeah. women are given that sort of reality when it comes to their most clear biological function, which is having children. And men are given that reality when it mm -hmm. comes to their creation of work because, let, again, obvious in the ancient world, there was a very clear division yeah. of labor and they were going out and foraging mm -hmm. and finding mm -hmm. food and, and women were, were having children and taking care of that domain. And of course, in many ways, that's still remains and with a tremendous amount of changes. But I think that that piece about um, that every person is sort of taught about is, is taught this very sometimes painful lesson about the bigger picture, right? Being able to, to look bigger. And I'll just share also, I feel like that was a really important point for me to hear, you know, like in this moment of my life as we're recording and I have a little child next to me <laughs> because there are many moments where the kind of mind numbing. And I would say that for some of us, some people enjoy those little moments, whether it's putting to sleep or nursing or and for others, we need to sort of like zoom out because otherwise we'll lose our minds. I shockingly am in the second category, right? Meaning like sort of like zoom out, big picture. I'm here for a broader purpose, creating these children in the world, right? And for me, the the zoom out is what creates the meaning because in the small moments, sometimes it could be sort of, you know, uh, tedious. Yeah. Um, um, and by the way, one of the things they do, the first thing humans do, the very, very first act that humans do after the choice of eating from the tree of knowledge and, and wanting to become godlike, because that's what the text tells us, that the serpent kind of seduces Chavab and tells her, you'll be like God. We all want to yeah. be like God, right? Limitless to have that ability and, right? to... Limitless, everlasting. Right, exactly. And then the very first two things that they do immediately, number one, they cover up, or in Brene Brown, Brene Brown, the popular psychologist in America who I love and is brilliant, she calls it armoring up right? When we don't want to face our inner selves, when we don't want to face the guilt, when we don't want to face the shame, when we don't want to face all of those things that we're running away from all the time, what we do is we armor up. And armor up is essentially yeah. covering up. That's exactly what Adam and Chavra do. They, they don't want to feel vulnerable. Because they can't, they don't want to feel vulnerable. Exactly. So, and, and God and Hashem says, Ayeka, because God because when we armor up, we can't have connection. And Hashem wants connection. So all the time he's calling us, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you? Avram Yeshua Heschel loved to speak about the fact that, you know, we just haven't heard God's question. That's why we're not answering him anymore. And I love that. I think it's so beautiful because Hashem's calling us. He wants that connection. And we just keep armoring up. We just keep covering up. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that they blame. And blame and shame is the classic human response mm -hmm. to guilt classic from a child like i think about the marshmallow test as well like if you see some of those videos the minute the parent comes back in and they say what happened to the marshmallow the child like looks around as if to find someone else to blame for eating the marshmallow like it's a classic human response but now i want to speak with you yourself about the third thing and that is what adam does after all of that In my mind, there are bookends to the Torah, which is why I think it's so beautiful that Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, come in the middle of those bookends because all of those Chagim are totally infused with these ideas, which is the idea of the bookends of Torah. You have Bereshit at the beginning, which is choice, which is making 
bad choices and then the consequences of the bad choices. And then what happens when the humans become humans, what do they do? And in a minute, I'm going to show you what Adam does. And then the, the bookend of that is Sefer Dvarim as they're about to enter the land. And Moshe turns around to the people and he says to them, you know, you have the choices before you, right? Bracha, klala, chayim, mavet, tov, ra, good, bad, life, death, curses, blessings. They're all in front of you. You as a human being have that choice. You are free. You can choose whatever you want to choose. And he says to them, choose life. Because choosing life doesn't mean to choose to live. It means to choose to live, to like really know what you're living for. When you have purpose, when you have meaning, you can face any why, any how. That's exactly what Victor Frankl and many others speak about this idea of having meaning in our lives. And I want to argue that the very first narrative of Adam is Adam making the choice of life. Because after that whole kind of mantra or whatever you can call it a curse or you can call it a consequence that God says to them, which is essentially, you know, you're going to have to work the land and the woman's going to have to have children. And from the dust, you'll... And then right at the, And this is basically how he finishes it. He says, You're going to eat through the sweat of your brow until you return to land because you were taken from it. Basically, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Right? It's extremely depressing, extremely despairing. And then in the very next pasuk, Vikra Adam Shemishtochava, Adam calls his wife Chava, Kihi Hayita Em Kochai, because she was the mother of all living beings. And in my mind, that is the moment of choice. To me, that is the choice, even more than the choice to eat from the tree. That's the moment that humanity is brought, that, that there's a, there's um it's the origin of true choosing for human beings, because what Adam essentially says is, I have the choice to basically bury my head in the sand, cover up, right, and not face the reality that is in front of me, which is actually extremely depressing reality, moving from this ideal existence in Gun Eden to this really non-ideal existence outside of Gun Eden. And instead of burying his head in the sand, or if you want a, a, more, a more contemporary analogy of putting the pillow back over his head, right, and going under the duvets. What Adam does is to, to dignify the other. First and foremost, he sees the other and he says, I can't do this alone. I need a partner. I need someone who's going to help to pull me out of this terrible, depressing situation, number one. And number two, I, to do that, I need to dignify the other. And the third, and this is the most important, I need to choose to see life. I see in my wife the ability to have children. And and I, Dafka, I'm looking at what God said. I'm looking at the reality and I'm choosing to interpret it differently. Because God said to me, and I'm saying, and that is the difference. There is a massive difference. It's the same reality. He's just choosing to see it differently. And to my mind, that is the greatest choice. That is So the bookends of the Torah are both about choosing okay, life. Okay, so I want to respond also to the previous bookend and Sefer Dvarim. I think that it's also worth saying that the reason that that message that Moshe gives, which as you said, is sort of like the generational echo of the choice that Adam himself makes in the beginning of the Torah. The reason that that is even more powerful is for two reasons. One is that in the ancient world, the religions and societies were not about empowering individuals. And we've kind of touched upon that idea in other episodes in previous years, but that itself is a unique mm -hmm. message 
privilege against the backdrop of the ancient world, this idea of personal choice, which I don't think is a modern read into the Torah. I 100% agree with you that it is one of the main points of the Torah, and it is utterly, utterly revolutionary. And the other reason, wait, hold on, the other reason why I think it's important yeah. is because after being given, in the case of our Parsha, it's one mitzvah, right? This uh, Many speak about, I don't remember anymore who, but that this sort of commandment, it's a test run for the rest of the Torah, which is going to be millions of commandments, right? And here we get this test run of a mitzvah, perhaps a sort of a foreshadowing of a mitzvah of kashrut, of the things you can or cannot eat. And we failed, right? We, we, we made the wrong choice in that moment. But it's also a really revelationary idea because we have so many commandments in the Torah, so we may not feel free, meaning this idea that I really have real choice. Sometimes you can forget that in the face of like this mounting amount of, of commandments that were given. So in the end of the Torah, when Moshe reminds Am Yisrael in our Vot Ma'av about the fact that we could choose between these two realities, we could choose how we see this reality of living with the covenant of God. You know, I, I think that it's a really important point also against what was the sort of the very common way of looking at reality then. And the Torah is saying, don't look at it like that. You you have a lot of commandments. You have a very specific way of life I'm, I'm committing you to or you're committing yourself to. But you you could choose that. Like you ultimately are the one who who becomes the agent of that. It's also why the Torah does not start with the Torah. <laughs> it's why the whole of Sefer Bereshit is a narrative about universal humans, not just the Jewish people and not just the Torah as a particular law. It's about the idea of what it is to be a human being. And in my mind, one of the things, one of the foundations, the, the essence of being a human is the ability to know what choices you're going to make and what the consequences of the choices are. Now, it was funny, over Rosh Hashanah, I was thinking also about the fact that you make choices in your life and you then have to live with those choices. You make choices about the type of life you live, about and, and bringing up children and having children or living within a family structure, which at times are very, very difficult and would not always be the choice that, that sits well with immediate gratification or pleasure or desire or whatever you wanted having a family having children having living within a society living within a community often is not always going to be your first choice in the moment of oh i would like to do that but when one looks at the long-term consequences when one sees what one builds over the years when one understands what it is to live within that structure and what it gives you and and the pleasure and the the meaning and the purpose that comes in that structure, I think that we realize that the choices we make are very much about the long term rather than the short term. And that is what gives meaning in this world. And what's beautiful, Yosefa, by the way, is that immediately afterwards we find um, God dresses them. Now, what does he do? He dresses them with oil, with an iron, with skin. He kind of gives them skin. Why? Because skin protects us. He gives them the ability to be protected. When we have an inner and outer self, when we understand that we are composed of many different parts and consciousness is an amalgamation of all different units and beings and senses and, and, and elements of being within ourselves, we need to be protected. We need to sometimes cover up. We do. But 
there's a beautiful um, reading that Ketona O, Ayin and Aleph are often interchanged. And it's not just the idea of skin, but it's also the idea of light. And that in a way, when Adam chooses life, God responds by giving him an inner light, by giving him this light that he's able to not to, to kind of that goes out of himself, that we are able to be a light for other people as well and to influence other people and to elevate other people. And I think that we all know people who really live, who have really made that choice of life, despite often very adversarial realities. And those people, those people who despite everything and despite the adversity that they faced, had chosen to live, really live, to really find meaning, really find purpose, those people emanate light. And in my mind, that's what God is saying when he gives him the all, that it's this ability to, to, to really kind of, bring light to the world through choosing life so that i would say is is a beautiful lesson in what it is to i, be I think well i don't want to sort of wrap up our conversation with something totally negative i think it is worth mentioning kain for a moment because because yeah, yeah because kain is is presented also with choice meaning adam and chava are presented with a choice by being told that they shouldn't eat from something, and the choice is an implied choice, right? You obviously, if you if you end up eating that, then something will happen. Uh, with Cain, God actually stops him almost right before he's going to make a bad choice uh, to to present him with the reality before him, or to clarify, to sort of really um, bring into focus the choice that he has in front of him, right? That that pasuk in uh, in Perik Dalit in the fourth chapter of Breshit. Yeah, so I this is I have a very specific yeah. reading on that. Um, if yeah, I've got yeah, like yeah, two yeah, minutes, please. I can yeah. share it. So I just want to frame it literally for one minute. Kain is the golden boy. He is, you know, Kaniti Ishat Hashem. That's what uh, Chava calls Which, him. Which, by the way, way I'm interrupting you because I want to just say that yeah. that's the first moment of sort of joy that we see. And it's a moment of joy that happens in childbirth. So it's an immediate response to that idea that we said before about the fact that, well, it's going to be be'etziv. She's going to kivichot, going to a painful, difficult process. But the first real moment of, I would say, one moment of joy is when, when Adam recognizes this woman as being his partner. That's when I'm finding joy yeah. in relationships. And the next moment we have it is Dafka in a moment of childbirth. So we immediately see that the tsar is not really is not is not the whole of the picture, right? The whole of the picture is something that much much broader than just a physical experience of what it what it brought her. Which is beautiful. And not just that, she's also imposing a certain reading, a certain narrative onto her reality when she says, the Tomal Kaniti Ishatashem, which is really beautiful, right? Because she kind of says like she understands I haven't done this all by myself. Like I'm not God. I actually, this is a partnership with And she God. also doesn't so name him Sa'ari or something like we see with Binyamin. We see no, many painful she names, but she does not name him anything Ed painful. Beautiful. And so so that I think is beautiful. The sad part of it is what happens to Hevel. We don't know why Hevel is called Hevel. It seems to be that he is just the Tosefet, right, the add-on. There's no reason given to his name. His name seems to just nothingness, Hevel like a fleeting breath. Uh, Rabbi Sachs translates it. Hevel seems to be this nothingness. Again, it reminds us of Hevel Havalim, of Kohelet, right? The vanity, vanity is a terrible translation, but really the nothingness of being. And in my mind, 
kind and Hevel also represent kind of two prototypical set ways of being or or existences. One is the kind, is the having, is the kind of trying to to own everything, to to possess everything. And Kain is, he works the land, he takes over the family business. He's the golden boy. He's born with the silver spoon in his mouth. Everything is at his fingertips. Hevel has had to face adversity. He's almost been rejected from the family. He becomes the shepherd. He goes out. He's he's, He's a wanderer. He doesn't have permanency. Again, this idea of permanency and certainty, he doesn't have any of those things. And one day Kain decides to bring a sacrifice. Why? Because he is the golden boy, because he knows, he ticks the box, he's a good boy and he wants to thank God in the same way that his mother thanks God he wants to thank God so he brings a sacrifice and then with the sacrifice what happens is that his brother follows sweet copies him and his brother brings also um, a sacrifice and God lifts up kind sacrifice but not Hevel's and then the biggest question and this is where the Mafash and the commentators really go to town because why would it be that God accepts Hevel's and doesn't accept Kayan's and we don't have an answer. And there's many, many answers given. But I want to suggest that the answer is very simple. Until this moment, Kayan had everything. He had the beautiful, um, you know, the, the eye of his mother, the eye of his father, the eye of God. Everyone was on his side. Hevel had nothing. And for the first time ever, God wants to accept Hevel. He wants to give Hevel, you know, the sense of meaning, of purpose, of being chosen, of, of, of knowing what it is to have something good in your life and Kai, and we don't know why but that's what happens and then all and then Kyan's face falls and obviously for the first time in his life he's facing a reality that isn't ideal and what happens Hashem turns around to Kyan. now again he could explain to Kyan why he's done what he does but he doesn't there's no explanation here he simply says to Kyan the following thing and in my mind this is one of the key psukim the key verses in Sefer Bereshit, it really, it's so, it's so important. He says, "Haloim teitiv seet ve'imlotetiv lefetach atar rovet ve'elecha chukatov atatim sholbo." He turns around now again. It's a very difficult pasuk to translate, but if I if we translate it in a very literal way, he, he says to him, "If you make good seet." Now we don't know if the seet here the is good or if it's the, yeah. the sacrifice <laughs> will be lifted, he will be lifted, or even he will lift up. It's very unclear. Okay, but something will be lifted, right? And if you don't make good, you will sin will always crouch at your door. And you will be drawn to it. And the only person who can control the outcome, you have the ability to reign over it. What is it? And in my mind, the it is the choice between good and and bad is the choice about how we see our reality. Meaning, Hashem turns around to Hevel, uh, to Kayan, sorry, at this point and says to him, this has happened, full stop, right? A bit like what Rav Soloveitchik says in, in Kol Dodi Dofek, fate and destiny, right? This he, and, and Rav Soloveitchik there says, we can ask the why question of suffering. We can ask it again and again and again. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? But ultimately... We're never necessarily going to get an answer. And so the only thing that we, the, the next step is not to ask the why, but the what. And that's exactly what Hashem says to, 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 to Kai in here. There's no answer to the why. I'm not giving you an answer why your sacrifices, why you're facing an adversarial uh, situation, why you're suffering, why it's not ideal. Exactly in the same way to, to he says to Adam and Chava, 
from dust to earth, dust you will return. This is the situation. This is what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to face a, a non-ideal reality. But one thing you have control over, he says to Kyan, and that is the way in which you see your reality. Imitative, are you going to make good of it? Or are you not going to make good of it? Are you going to be the victim of your victimhood? Or are you going to take agency in your reality? And the answer is that ultimately Kyan doesn't hear. He doesn't understand. And what does he do? He kills heaven. Now, what I want to suggest is that he's not just literally killing heaven. And by the way, again, covering it up, burying heaven in the ground. I think he's killing not just heaven, but the prototypical heaven, which is the nothingness. It's what the existential philosophers call, you know, the nothingness of being. The idea that we are dust of the earth. We are Navaned. We are wanderers. We are people who live in a life that is short. We live with mortality. We live in a fleeting moment, exactly as um, is described in Shlom HaMelech, describes in Kohelet, right? Our life is a fleeting moment. What do we have? What, what, what is there in our lives? And we have a choice. We can either choose hedonism, immediate gratification, or we can choose meaning, purpose, seeing light, seeing good, elevating ourselves, our situation, making good of our reality, creating a new and a different narrative, creating a narrative of purpose, of good, of meaning. And, and, and that is what God calls Hevel, calls kind to do. Instead, he kills the heavelness, the nothingness, the being towards death within himself, and the consequence of that is that he has to become a Navaned. He has to live the life of Hevel. He has to live constantly with uncertainty, with the inability of to, to have something, to have a grounding in his life, to have any certainty in his life. And I, and I think in my mind, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the very famous... Um, she was a pioneer in, in, in end-of-life experiences. And she says, she always talks about this, that only when we face our death and the nothingness of being, only when we look at that like finite of our existence, only then do we really begin to consider how we want to live. And only then do we really begin living. And I think, in a way, that's what God is saying to Kayan. You've never faced adversity, therefore you've never really faced the question of heavenness. Now, I'm putting heavenness in front of you and I'm telling you, you have a choice. You can either kill it and cover it up and constantly run away from it and armor up, right? Or you can face it and you can live with the uncertainty and still make good of the situation. Kayan chooses the opposite. Adam, Dafka, chooses to choose life. And Moshe says to the people in Sefer Tvarim, this is the choice before you. You need to be choosing life. But the one thing I just want to bring up here is that I think that the, the choice that's given to Adam and Chava is a choice I really I really identify with that frame of, of, uh, of life and death. And because there's an it's tov vira. There's a tree of of uh, of you know good and and perhaps less good knowledge, but the choice that they make there, the consequence of it is a ch- is the consequences are consequences of life and death. The the pasuk that's presented to Cain 
is much more focused on moral discernment. It uses the word tov, but doesn't use the word ra, but the ra is implied. And I sort of feel like if you look at each generation, they sort of like grow on the, or sort of grow forward from the lives or the decisions or the choices of their parents. And so in the case of Cain, you know, his father and, and mother sort of deal with this question of life or death, make a choice, and it brings perhaps mortality into the world. And Cain is the one that's truly faced with this question of good or good or evil. Do, should I do good or bad? And and I think that Adam and Chava couldn't sort of grapple with all that at the same time. And as you say so beautifully, they choose life. It reflects itself in the choices that come after in the creation of, of a family. And Cain is really this prototype of what does it mean to choose evil, right? To choose murder. And I think that it's important that while Adam and Chava end up making a better choice as time continues, they also start first with the wrong choice. And and ultimately, you know, as we say, our, our mistakes are our biggest teachers. And that that's just a reality of, of how we function in this world. A hundred percent. I agree with you. And I think I think, and again, I think that the text can be read on multiple levels, meaning, of course, there's a very basic level in which and God warns him, right, and says to him, you know, you're going to be drawn towards murderous instincts when you get angry, and that's, that's, that's what's going to happen. And that's the literal life and death. That's a literal living and dying. But I, but as I said, which I've, I've tried to give over, which I think there's also a... Yes, it's a, an existential, kind of an existential. ...versive yeah. reading of yeah. the text, which is more about what we spoke about at the beginning, this prototypical human, what it is to be the prototypical yeah. human. And, and, and that's not just about the physical. It's not just about murdering the physical. It's also about murdering something within. It's like murdering that light, the light that that person represents, the goodness that that person represents, and the goodness of what we see in our reality as well, the heavenness. Our answer needs to be yes. Yeah. Right. And we'll see, of course, how the rest of the figures in Sefer Breshid also deal with this question and how a generation deals with this question and how are what sort of yeah. the continued chapters of this message, what 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 character and what what lavouche, right? What sort of dress this uh, this question takes on in the coming Parshiota Sefer Breshid. Tanya, I really, really want to thank you for this conversation and for opening up our study of the book of Breshid with, I would say, like a philosophical and also existential prism. On, on the book because I think it's going to really serve these conversations and, and guide us in the future. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one -on -one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.